Hello, and welcome to Magic is Real, a podcast focused on the fascinating world of near-death experiences, spirit communication, and all things metaphysical and spiritual. The mission of this project is to share messages of hope and inspiration with others, and to spread the word that death is only an illusion. Thank you for being here with an open heart and mind. I wish you peace, light, and love always. Hello, Magic is Real listeners. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm Shannon, and I'm your host. Today, I have with me Ainsley Sewell Threadgold, one of the most beautiful names I've ever heard. Sounds like an actor's name. Um, and Ainsley is a near-death experiencer who is also a police officer. And I was just telling him how wonderful it is that I think uh, we have people who have such beautiful open hearts uh, doing such such a public service um, from a place of love and caring. And I am here with Ainsley to discuss his spiritual journey. And uh, another interesting fact is that Ainsley's wife, Krista, is also a near-death experiencer. So we're going to talk about that as well. Welcome, Ainsley, to Magic is Real. Hi. Hi. Lovely to be here. <laughs> Lovely to Hello, have everybody. You. <laughs> since I'm not from here. <laughs> Uh, it's so lovely to have you here. So I would love to start by talking about your past and your background, whatever you're comfortable sharing about who you were as a child, uh, what your former spiritual beliefs may have been or not been, and uh, as it pertains to your spiritual journey, what what place were you coming from in terms of your knowledge and understanding of spirituality? Yeah, so um been brought, I was uh, born in the 1980 in, in the UK, so um back then there was still uh, an obligation to a point of uh, going to Sunday school and going to church and and uh, learning things in primary school singing hymns so you know that there was that uh, Christian element uh, being brought up so you know learning about the Christmas story and doing uh, nativity plays and learning about Easter and and all of those things so that that sort of uh, followed my childhood so I had an understanding uh, of, of things to an extent. Uh, I remember learning about Jesus on the cross at one Sunday school. I was probably about seven or eight. Not, not really understanding it. Um, you know, the, 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 the story of the sacrifice and why the sacrifice was so important, but it was there. So uh, there's, there's that. Um, as we'll talk about at some point during this interview, uh, my near-death experience happened, uh, or the, the instant that took place that allowed me to have the experience that I didn't experience until a lot later on actually happened when I was 13. And it sounds a little bit confusing, but when I talk about it, it sort of makes sense that it, it's one of these things that happened over a period of decades, but the instant itself happened when I was 13. So um, although I didn't have any initial recall from it, there was a change that happened. So as we're on the subject, I'll, um, you know, I'll discuss it now. Yeah. Um, so when I was 13, I actually remember um, the last lesson I had at school that day was French and it was a Tuesday. And I remember, distinctly remember looking out the window um, because the, where I was at the school, um, I used to have to walk for the bus. So I was looking at that route because as a kid, you know, the best time of school is the time when the bell goes and you can go home. Um, went home uh, and that night uh, my brother and I were going to go out, out and help uh, our father to deliver leaflets for the local council, local government. Uh, my parents are both uh, in 
interested in uh, government and politics. And one of the caveats for that was every time they did a, um, you know, a campaign leaflet drop, uh, pamphlet drop, as they call them over here, uh, we'd go and help deliver those leaflets. So I grew up in a village, um, very safe place in the sense that uh, we would walk to school, we'd walk to the shops on our own and there was never, never an issue. So uh, going to deliver some leaflets in the village I grew up in wasn't a big deal. It was just, oh, do we have to? Um, I remember that the meal that my mother was going to cook was a Chinese meal and we were looking forward to that when we got back. I love food, I always have done. Um, and I remember the last place that we were going to go to, or one of the last places we were going to go to is a, is a lane called Clay Lane. Um, and it was a country lane, so there's no, uh, there's no real pavements, no sidewalks, um, a single carriage. And uh, if you're not careful, you know, cars can come and go and, and you, you do have to be a little bit more aware, you have to be country aware. So I remember seeing the sign and then that's it. I don't remember anything other than seeing Clay Lane until uh, several hours later when I woke up in hospital. Um, and you know, I woke up, opened my eyes, I'm in a room that isn't my room, as uh, a strange sort of orange glow. And as I look up, I can see my parents and my brother sat on plastic seats with a very lo uh, worried look on their face. Um, and it was at that point, they tried to explain what had happened to me, but uh, I wasn't really cognizant. I'd, I'd been run over, so I'd been hit by a car at approximately 40 miles an hour. Uh, so statistically, uh, even, even that, I'm lucky to be here. Um, there's a statistic in the UK, which is that 80% of uh, children that hit at 30 miles an hour um, survive with injuries. So 20% don't survive. 40 miles an hour, so there's only a 10 mile an hour difference, that flips. So there's only 20% that survive, and that's normally with very significant injuries, brain injuries, body injuries, life-changing injuries, and 80% don't make it. So um, I'm, you know, in that sense, I, I realized that even then I was lucky to be here, but I don't have any, I didn't have any memory at all, just a black hole. Um, the only thing that was different was that um, I'd been given a, a watch that I was quite proud of for my 13th birthday that year, and that had smashed in the, in the accident that was no longer there. So whilst I was in hospital, my parents bought me the same watch so I could have it back. Now, within a very short period of time, that watch stopped. It was new, brand new battery, it just stopped. And then the next watch I had stopped, and the one after that stopped. Um, and that's like, oh, that's interesting. No longer wear watches without something going wrong with them. And as I, uh, as I sort of grew into my teens, then other things would happen occasionally. The CDs would skip and the radio signal wasn't so good. And, you know, little odd things like that uh, would occur that hadn't happened before. And it was an anomaly that sort of stuck there, but wasn't really anything too important because I didn't carry any memories of anything. I didn't remember going into any special places. I just remember that I didn't remember anything and that I'm lucky to be here. So that, at that point then my life carried on. I, uh, in my late teens, met my uh, ex-wife. Uh, so we sort of uh, grew up together in a sense. Um, and by my mid twenties, I was in a bit of a um, bit of a bad place spiritually. Um, so I decided that the best place for me to go would be to to church. So it's I think going back to my childhood, it's always been something there, forgiveness of sins, and 
I felt I had a lot to be, uh, I needed to be forgiven for. So that was a place of solace for me. Um, but what happened there that stayed with me was that I, I was very good at starting to interpret messages. I went to a Pentecostal church, or the, as they used to call them, the happy clappy churches. Um, you know, they were very, very much into um, letting the Holy Spirit speak through people and, and you know, uh, speaking in tongues and interpreting those. And I, I found that it was quite easy for me to, uh, to do that. And also um, I realized that my job at the time, I was uh, working for the police in a community setting. And I'd find that people would uh, just out of the blue, probably, and I thought at the time, just because I was in uniform, would come and talk to me. So I'd talk to them. Maybe they had uh, community issues that they wanted to talk about. And they would start to talk about personal things that were going on that they'd not shared with anyone else. Okay, fair enough. And then I, I always found that I was, I felt like what I was saying was helping and that maybe I was being spoken through. It was a weird, a weird sensation. I'd always get like a burning in my throat and in my chest. And it just felt like, I was being guided to say things um, and I, I didn't really realize why I just went with it. So I'd have a lot of people um, over the time that I did the job in different areas and it would always happen. Someone come over, have a conversation about something, then we'd start talking about other things and you know, they'd go away saying, I'd not, no, I've not shared that with anyone and, and thank you for your time. Um, and then they you know, go along the way and some people um, I kept in contact with and, and other people, it was just a, a, a small interaction. But again, that was it. There was no sort of, um, there's nothing else special about it. Uh, there was no light that came from the sky that uh, came down on me and told me why those things were happening. They just did. Um, and then in my late 20s, I came away from church and it was because I started to feel as though the message was was bigger and it wasn't being let out and I was sat in church and I had a very particular message come to me which was Ainsley open the box I'm bigger than this so don't don't box me and it was almost like a it was God or source because I, I and I, I felt hypocritical uh, sitting there listening to some of the things that were being talked about or preached uh, and I, I, I wasn't sort of um, I didn't fully it didn't sit well with me that a good person who didn't believe in Jesus had to go to hell. Um, and, and that was it. It wasn't a case of, oh, well, you know, the, the, the nasty person can go to heaven if they're forgiven. It's like, well, you know, the original reason why I went to church is because I felt I, I needed to be forgiven. So there, there's that side and that sat well. But the good person who didn't know anything about Jesus, who gave to charity, was always good to the family, uh, whatever, would also have to go to hell because they didn't, uh, know God through Jesus and I, I was like no that's that's not how I feel and I felt that that was the message open the box so I, I did uh, I left the church and then um, life then sort of went up and then went down again for me so by the time I was 34 I was in another sort of quite bad place inside I never I never really was very good at talking about how I felt as we were talking about before the show, um, you know, men don't discuss feelings. And uh, my my then wife and I had been together for a long time, 16, 17 years. And all of the issues that we, we'd had just got buried, again, as we were talking about, and we never dealt with them. Um, she talked a lot about how she felt about everything. And I just sat there very often. It would be three, four, five hour conversation and I wouldn't say a word. And that's not because I didn't have anything to say. I just didn't know how to say it. 
uh, that frustrated her because she wanted to have some interactions. She wanted to know how I felt about things. And I just, I, I, I didn't have anything to, to say. And I certainly didn't want to get angry um, or, you know, or say something with a sense of passion. And because I'm a big guy, come across as me being angry. So I just didn't say anything. I bottled it. And by then I was, I was a, a fully fledged police officer. So I was also dealing with things in the, in the police that uh, most people um, wouldn't dream about dealing with, dealing with suicides and, and things like that. So that was all stored and that manifested itself uh, mentally and physically. And the interesting thing that happened was that uh, I woke up one day and I couldn't feel the bottom half of my left leg. So from my knee down was just completely numb. And uh, that was where I'd originally broken my leg. The main injury was a, a badly smashed left leg. So I'm like, I, I couldn't go to work. Um, it was diagnosed as acute sciatica um, and I just had to have time off until whatever had happened recovered itself. Uh, me being me, I don't really like just taking pills um, that, you know, physically is a case of, well, is there a way of me uh, helping? Uh, and I already uh, had contact with uh, an osteopath. who's was an older guy, um, who I'd seen before for different things and he'd, he'd always helped and I went to see him and I was interested because of where the, my leg was numb so it was exactly the same place as a broken why was it numb from there down why wasn't it numb from from up here or why wasn't the the right leg numb why was it there that was numb so I, I went for an appointment I saw him and I spoke to him uh, about the accident when I was 13 because I thought well maybe there's a correlation maybe there's something that happened then that um, would help him to decipher what's going on with me now and I happened to mention that I don't remember the accident itself and that I couldn't wear watches and he was like well maybe you've had something called a near-death experience you just don't remember it and all of a sudden it's like hmm so he hands me a book uh and it's a book, and the author is a lady called Dr. Penny Satori, uh, who lives in the UK, and she was a, um, a nurse in a high dependency unit for many years, and had had experiences of people passing away and having a near-death experience and coming back, and then saying, I've, I think I've been somewhere. And she had a direct experience with one patient who she was helping to revive from a heart attack, who then later spoke to her. Um, so because it was more than just a coincidence with so many people over the time that she was there saying, I think I've been somewhere, she uh, was eventually funded to do a, a long-term study on this phenomenon for people in the clinical setting coming back. And they were coming back with information about what had happened in an operation. They could see things that they couldn't possibly have seen because they were supposed to be under or they at that point had died. So how can they uh, see what the doctor was doing? How could they see what the doctor was wearing and what they were, uh, and different things in the room? How could they have those memories? And, you know, uh, she then had that, uh, as well as still having to, to work, she had that as a, uh, like a longitudinal study. So she wrote this book. It was the first book that she'd written. Um, and at the end of the book, there was a group of experiences that gave their experiences and what happened before and, and how they, how they were afterwards. And I was reading these things saying, that sounds like me. And, oh yeah, I've experienced that with electronics. And oh yeah, I have that issue with the watch. But I still didn't have a memory. It didn't, it, it didn't suddenly just, I didn't suddenly just wake up and go have that eureka moment. And, and all of a sudden, anything that might have happened come flood back. I just had this uh, thread 
that I could start to pull at. So there was a, a website attached to the book for uh, Near Death Experience UK, which was based in London at the time and in the UK, just for people's reference. I lived in the county of Cheshire, which is nestled between Manchester and Liverpool. They're the two main cities uh, in the north of England. So London is down in the southeast. It wasn't somewhere that I could just, uh, you know, drive to. It's 250, 300 miles away. So I uh, emailed them and asked if they knew of anyone that had had similar things where they may have had an experience, they just don't recall it. Um, but they've had possibly some of the after effects. And their answer to me was, we've not heard of anything, uh, but we'll keep you posted. Well, whilst I'm waiting for, for any answers that might come, I get impatient and I'm like, well, I, it's about time I dealt with the big hole of it in my memory. And how do I best, uh, how do I best discover what might be locked in there? Um, and hypnotherapy just popped into my mind as the best way for me to maybe get some memories back and put this to bed. Uh, now, bearing in mind that I, you know, analytically being a police officer, you have to be as unbiased as possible. So my unbiased opinion on that was that I might just recover some very nasty memories about being run over and that's it. Nothing more special than that. But I was prepared at that point to, to go through that process um, because it, it was going to be healing for me. Um, I was already suffering from the after effects of not dealing with things with the sciatica. So uh, maybe this was a way of me healing from that and moving on. Um, so I went to Mr. Google and typed in hypnotherapists in the area and uh, two popped up uh, very prominently as almost like the, the, the names leapt off the screen and one leapt off more than the other. Uh, There's a lady uh, called Karen who lived, actually she was the furthest away from me, but she was, it was the name that just really shot out to me. So I, called her and left her a message and then within an hour she called me back and it was like speaking you know like you said about the the friend of yours it's like speaking to an old friend it's like we knew each other I'd known each other for a long long time and we would just reconnected didn't know this lady in in this life and she didn't know me from Adam but there was just something about her and and it's like I, I knew this person so we arranged for me to go and have my first session and me being me, um, you know, even if I really don't like the idea, I always, I always like to be thrown in at the deep end because I might as well. Uh, don't just let me paddle around in the, the baby part of the pool. I want to, you know, if, I, if I'm going to do this, I might as well, you know, go big or go home type thing. So uh, rather than just being having a very gentle introduction into how hypnotherapy works, it's like, well, I'll just have a full session because, uh, because why not? Um, why, why have five or six sessions when you can just have one type thing so uh, I went in uh, she explained the process to me uh, and the way that she did it uh, she had been clinically trained and then moved into regressional hypnotherapy which was uh, more of a spiritual calling so she uh, had stages within which I was to relax which helped me go from the uh, the conscious mind into the more into deep into the subconscious which would allow me to perhaps access memories the only guarantee that she could give me was that I would access some memories from some point in time, uh, maybe in other lifetimes, but there was, it, it would be where my subconscious took me as opposed to where I wanted to go. So I, I couldn't just direct myself to uh, the accident because that's the only thing I want, because it might not be the, uh, the most healing thing for me. 
you know, it's a little bit like taking a, a painkiller or an anti-inflammatory. You want it because you've hurt your back, but the anti-inflammatory takes your head away, a headache away. It goes where it knows it need, it's needed most, not where we generally, you know, where we think it should go. So uh, knowing that I uh, gently went into the hypnotherapy and she got me to picture a garden and there was different levels to the garden. And each time I would go into a new level, it would be a new level of consciousness and that would be down steps. And uh, there was a point where I was in uh, a low enough level within my subconscious for me to then imagine a pathway. And on one side was a, a wall with trees and the other side, there was a wall, but had doors instead. And my job was to choose a door and whatever door I stepped through, uh, the idea was is that I would start by, in my mind's eye, looking down. Can I see anything that I'm wearing on my feet? What's the floor like? trousers am I wearing if I'm wearing trousers do I feel male or female is it is it from this life is it from another life um so the first door I walked through um I looked down and I was actually wearing old brown sandals and I immediately felt like an old man and I could see I was wearing what looked like a dark brown sackcloth and the floor was a stone floor and as I as I started to look up I realized I was in an old church um and it was an old church um in the south of France from hundreds of years ago. I realized I was an old man. Um, I was a, a possibly a monk, um, certainly spiritual, but I had a, a great uh, burden. Um, I, it, was, it was almost like this place was home, but it didn't feel comfortable to me. Um, and I uh, looked down at my hands and there was a cross there, but I, I, it was almost like I had blood on my hands. Um, and solace wise in this life, I would always go to the pulpit where there was a Bible and I was looking at this old Bible uh, and it gave me no solace. There was nothing there that uh, spoke to me or, or really could take away this, this burden. Um, I later found out that uh, at that time, the, uh, there was a group of uh, Christians, Cathars, who were being systematically sorted by the Catholic Church. And I realized that as the monk had been part of the Catholic Church, so I hadn't been directly part of the, the killing of the, um, this other religious group, but because I'd been associated with the group that was, I felt the burden of the, um, you know, of those deaths. So it was like a symbolic. Um, and that was the first ex ex part of the experience that I had being under. Now, carrying up this point then, guided me out of that uh, instance in that life and then asked me to choose a door that would represent something in my life now and again it wasn't a case of why oh, you go to that door because that's from your 13th year it's a case if you go to any door and it will represent something in your life as I went through the door I realized that I was like half buried in a ditch and I quickly realized in that day state that I was back at the site of my accident so I actually was that 13 year old boy and I was starting to experience some of the after effects of having just been hit so I vaguely remember the ambulance being there and the ambulance men being there and I think my father was there and my brother was there as well uh, in fact my brother who was only 11 at the time um, tried to help me into the ambulance as I was you know re remembering um, whilst in the ambulance I was actually visited by my grandfather on my mother's side. Um, and the interesting, interesting and very special thing there was that I never knew him. He was born, he, sorry, he died three months before I was born. So I, I was born to a grieving mother. 
and uh, his name was Thomas and my name was supposed to be Thomas. I'm Ainsley Thomas, Fred Gold, Sir Fred Gold. I was supposed to be Thomas Ainsley, um, Ainsley being my father's middle name and it was going to be my middle name. Um, but my father couldn't bring himself to uh, call me Thomas Ainsley because he didn't want to upset my mum who just lost her dad, Thomas. So he came to me in the ambulance, um, immediately recognisable, even though I'd never met him. Um, and we conversed. Um, he, first of all, wanted to let me know that I was going to be okay. Um, he also wanted me, if I, if, if I could, was to pass a message on to my mum. Um, he died when he was, uh, he died when he was 49, so he never really got a chance to tell her how proud he was, so he wanted me to pass that message on, um, and then he said, it's going to be okay, the only thing I want you to do is just close your eyes, just close your eyes, everything's going to be okay, and at that point, I felt myself um, come out of my body and the next instant I was almost floating in a cloud space. Um, and as I was uh, floating, it was almost like going down a meandering river. Uh, and as I, was, I, as I was floating, I noticed that I was going towards like a, a, almost like a cloud city. And at some point in the distance, there was a figure who was coming towards me and I was being brought towards this, uh, this figure um, in a white robe. And as I got brought to the figure, I was brought to it. I was almost lifted to be standing and this figure uh, knelt down in front of me. And he said, hello, my son, I'm the carpenter. You know me. And I know you. I love you as you love me. And I love everyone else as I love you. Um, you're very special. And as he said that, he put his hand on my chest. Ah, sorry. And his other hand on my face and I could actually physically feel that at that time but also being lying on the the bed in this hypnosis state I could actually feel the energy of the hands there as well it was like it was still physically happening and he said I want you to do me a favor and I want you to speak for me and there'll be points where I'll speak through you but you're not going to remember this until the right times at that point then, um, I was brought from that cloud space back into the ambulance and then I had a few um, flash, flashes of memory of, of being in the hospital and, and calling for my mum. And then I was brought out of that um, particular experience because you know Karen recognised that I was under a lot of distress because I, was the, I might as well have just been the 13-year-old boy that was in hospital and they were trying to do things to my leg and um, she brought me out of that and very gently brought me back from the uh, from that uh, hypnosis. So I wake up and realise that I had had some experience and I'd started to at least started to recover um, some of the memories from it and you get the elation of wow I finally got the answer and then there was also the heavy burden of oh but I've lived this life that I've lived so far I'm not really that proud of all of it and now it just felt like responsibility. Um, at the same time, because, you know, I wasn't, I still wasn't very proud of myself. Um, cutting back to um, being a teenager, I was painfully shy. So I um, 
couldn't look at people in the eye when I was talking to them. I would have to look away because if I looked away, then I couldn't see them looking at me and I was more comfortable doing that. Uh, and that followed me into my adulthood. I, I, could, I couldn't get changed um, without, you know, if I'd had a shower and I was in, in my bedroom, even if it was on my own, I had to get dressed under a towel. Um, I just was, and it wasn't so much all body shame, it was just shame. Um, and that's that's how it manifested. I, um, you know, I, if I, I would look at myself in the mirror and do my hair, but I wouldn't really look at myself, um, and I certainly couldn't do that on clothes. So, um, you know, that that folded in with all of the other things that I, I uh, wasn't proud of. I just came to that point where you know I had to then start to face it because I'd then been given a gift that I'd unknowingly already been using as I was saying before in my, in my job where people would talk to me and I felt like I was being spoken through, that was why. So um, I emailed the uh, near-death experience group uh, back and said, I've just had a hypnosis session. This is the memories that I recovered. Um, and they were very excited for me. And they said, well, look, um, because of where you are in the north of England, would you, uh, would you help us? We want to set up a... Um, the near-death experience northwest and we've got an interested party would you be willing to uh, help as well of course you know this is where perhaps i get to give back and perhaps i get to feel less guilty about being me um so yeah, i wanted to help obviously um and i was put in touch with a, a lady called um kelly walsh who had also had an experience she tried to commit suicide and uh, during the um the, the time that the suicide was taking place she had an experience of going through uh, several realms um, and uh, came back knowing that um, souls to, for, for things to change souls would have to collaborate so she had this vision of, uh, of all like-minded souls coming together to collaborate to um, spread positivity and love on on this earth um, and that was that was her mission she'd come up with the positivity princess um, as a character and she was a caricature of that um, and that was that was part of her message um, so we got in touch and um, it was it, first of all it was to help set up this new chapter of the near-death experience group but it very quickly became apparent that there was something else there for us to do um, I had come off Facebook and social media and things a year year or so before um, and she was like, well, you know, there's lots of near-death experience groups and lots of lovely people on there and, you know, perhaps you could get to know them. And if you really, you know, if you wanted to, then, you know, come back onto Facebook and, you know, we'll friend each other on there and, and we'll go from there. So it was almost like I had this nagging sensation. It's like the universe saying, come on, this is, this is time to step forward. So I did. And again, met some very lovely people um, on, online and it's like this family uh, sense came excuse me came together but there was one particular group that um, Kelly and I were both part of where there was a particular person in the group who was an admin for the group who wasn't very nice he wasn't very nice to her and he, he also started to not be very nice to me um, obviously had his own issues and um, you know that that sparked a conversation between Kelly and I and she said well look I want to set up my own group positivity power movement and I need I need help would you help me again of course so together we set this group up and I invited a few people that I already knew from the, the near-death um, community and she invited all her friends and people from that community um, to set this group up. And 
after a few weeks, we uh, were all given the task of doing videos. Who are we? What, you know, what do we want to do? What do we want to achieve here? What experiences have we had? Um, so we all did these videos and everyone was like, oh, yes, yeah, a great video. And they were getting likes and loves. And I um, had been inspired to do a video from a photograph I'd seen. And this photograph was very moving. It was of a four-year-old girl holding her hands up um, in a war-torn country. And she thought that the cameraman had had a gun and was going to shoot her. So it's like, why, why have we come to this point where children are scared and they have this instant fear that their, their lives are going to be taken away and all this guy was doing was taking a photograph. But her impression of that was that he had a gun and she was going to be shot. So it's like, well, um, we need to grow. And, you know, I just had this vision of being an acorn and an acorn grows into an oak tree and that we have that potential. And it just, it's a case of sometimes it has to be buried for it to, for it to grow. And I, that's what I spoke of. That's what inspired me. And I put this video out there very nervously and had no views, no likes, no loves, no comments, no nothing. So I'd done all of that and I didn't get anything and my ego got a little bit bruised. <laughs> what I didn't realize was that the video had been seen and been seen a few times um, by my now wife, Krista. Um, now this is where this is where the synchronicities start to um, come in uh, as to how we met. So uh, Krista knew Kelly through uh, Dr. Penny Story, who was the author of the book I told you about. Now uh, Penny Story at the time probably had about fourteen or fifteen thousand emails that she hadn't replied to because she was very very busy. She'd just written the book. She was working. She was doing more studies. You know, her life was not in a position where she could just reach out to anyone. And, uh, but she was drawn to an email from Kelly. So she corresponded with Kelly. And the, the only other email that she was drawn to was from Krista. So uh, Krista, obviously, um, being in Florida at the time, she'd just written her book on her near-death experience, which we'll discuss after, discuss after. And she wanted to know uh, who Penny was using as a um, as a publisher in the UK. So she'd you know written an email in the hope that that would be the answer. Um, she got that answer, but she also got introduced to Kelly. Uh, Penny, for some reason, decided that they that they should connect, and they did. And because they had that connection, Kelly had invited Krista to this group, and Krista viewed my video, and she said that uh, seeing me on this video was like being hit by a freight train. The energy of it. She couldn't understand why this big guy, you know, looked like a rugby player um, size. I was talking about feelings and emotions and uh, uh, and spiritual growth and and love. So it was uh, an interest that didn't go away. And same thing for her when she posted her video. It's like, you know, who's this person and what is it about her that speaks to me? And bearing in mind that we were both at the end of other marriages, and we were living four and a half thousand miles apart in different countries, there's nothing obvious there to suggest that there's that there's anything other than just a, a, an interest, a vague at that time, a vague interest. At, um, it's like, well, why is this person out of everyone else that I, I seem to have met in this community? Why is it that this person is is more interesting to me, and why is it that? That there seems to be this connection that doesn't doesn't go away. So we initially got to know each other, um, and you know, obviously not been in the position to have a relationship. It's friends, of course. 
um, and we revolved around each other and we, you know, we had a video chat and they were very powerful. Um, you know, we were face to face like we are on the screen and it was just that there was times where we, we couldn't look at each other for too long. It was like the light was too bright. Yeah. Um, so it's like the, you know, feelings start to develop and then I got scared and, and came off everything. I just, uh, oh, no, no, I, I'd already Ain't made a mess sleep. of my life. I wasn't, I wasn't going <laughs> to, you know. So I, I, I came away from Facebook and I just I cut contact. Um, again, it's that typical um, male thing and, and, you know, being uh, being ashamed of other things. It's like, well, this is just something else to be ashamed of. And I, I, I'd already hurt people and I didn't want to hurt any more people. So I came away from everything. And then uh, lo and behold, I'd signed up to another uh, near-death group, which wasn't on Facebook. It was a separate, um, separate group by google and i'd put a profile in there and, and things and i'm not really done anything with it um she was on that group and found me there and sent me uh, a message and she said listen you know i'm not offended by you drawing away i don't know what's going on but i feel like i know your soul i'm gonna cry yeah so you know this is like powerful stuff run away and she's still there it doesn't seem to matter where i run she's she's there for some reason yeah. and there was no there was no sort of uh, ego for her to be there there was no other than knowing that, that there was something uh, about our relationship that was special she had no sort of um hope that it would it would sort of go anywhere she was just very gently there and um you know again that developed and this was in 2015, um, about then it was approaching the summer. And um, it came to the point where I knew that my marriage had ended and we'd just had our daughter. And I had this uh, immense sense of responsibility for not having my daughter go through the same thing that I went through, which was two people that were together only for the child. And then there is that, um, you know, regret from all parties. My parents, you know, now will both freely admit that they shouldn't have stayed together just for us kids. They were miserable. Uh, and I didn't want that to happen to another generation. So, um, and again, I hadn't just made the decision. I'd gone to uh, speak to, um, you know, I'd gone back to my friend Karen and she had a friend who was a, a medium and had gone for readings. And, uh, you know, it, it was, it wasn't just, uh, what was inside that was telling me it was it was everything else was reflecting that as well that the best thing and the most loving thing to do is and sometimes is, is the most difficult thing which is to come away so I came away and I, I uh, separated from my wife it's a very very difficult time and there's still times where I, I find it hard to uh, come to terms with having to make that decision then but it was the best thing for me to do um, my daughter doesn't ever remember me being at home um, so there was none of that. She's old enough and aware enough to know that daddy's gone and, and is it my fault? So she, she doesn't have that. She doesn't um, think that uh, her mum and I split up because of her. She doesn't have any of that uh, guilt that some kids have. Um, but whilst I came away, I also had this uh, element of having lived so long with the same person. I, uh, I had this wild side that wanted to be free. Um, so I, I explored that for a little bit. And again, that was the second time that Krista and I um, parted ways uh, for a little while. She had 
been due to uh, fly to the UK for us to spend some time together and it was the, the timing was wrong and obviously the universe then decided to uh, allow us to do this for a while um, but again she uh, held no ego over the over the temporary separation and a few weeks later on uh, you know she contacted and said I'm ready if you are for what I didn't know and she didn't know I'm ready if you are and by December that year she came out to the UK we embraced the fact that there was something there and you know we realized that there was a, a greater deeper love there than um, we could possibly ignore so uh, it's part of to explore that she came out to visit for the first time um, funny story going to pick her up from uh, Manchester Airport, which is an airport that I knew very well. It was actually covered by, it was partially because uh, it had a railway attached to it. So being part of the railway police, it's somewhere that I'd been to quite often, so I knew it very well. Going to the airport that day, nervous as, as anyone could possibly be. I'd been to the toilet six or seven times before her flight landed. <laughs> yeah. um, and I stood there and I was just like a little kid and uh, you know, the gates opened, she finally came out and I could barely get my legs to work to walk towards her. But as I did walk towards her, it was like everything else melted away. It was just her and I um, in the airport. And we, you know, shared off first kiss. And again, everything just melted away. And I was like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> all I could really stumble. And then we, uh, I went to help with a suitcase to go to the car and I couldn't find the car I couldn't find the exit she had to find it for me she'd never been there she'd never been to the UK and she was helping me because I was just so dumbfounded by the uh, being in, in her presence physical presence for the first time um you know and she was feeling it as well for you know in her own way but we just uh, were just there we were actually physically there with each other after all of the video chats that we'd done and all of the building up and parting and building up and parting and building up, we were actually stood in front of each other. Um, and we had 10 or 11 days together. Um, and then I, I, she came over again in the January for her birthday. And then I went to the States for the first time for my birthday in February. Um, and obviously by then, um, we already knew how we felt. And when she came over for her birthday in the January, I proposed to her um and it was one of these things where i just felt i i was just guided um yeah. and for us yeah we're we're very um very much into numerology and and uh, numbers being important and both of our dates of birth numerologically come to 22 um and i went into a particular store that i knew um to see if i could buy something special for her birthday and i was like well if i'm if whatever i'm meant to buy i'll know and I you know, went in there, they sell jewellery, they sell all sorts of things. And the first thing I'm drawn to is a ring uh, with seven little diamonds on it. And the price of it was £222. Confirmed. And it's like, couldn't even ignore it. No it's like, I, was, I was in there for five minutes, this was it. So I was going to, I was going to um, propose to her. Um, I, I'd written her a song and she knew about the song, um, but I, I wrote it in a card. Uh, and at the end, I asked her to marry me in, in the card. And as nervous as I was, I allowed her to read the card. And, oh, that was, that's the song that you wrote for me. And it's lovely. It's like, no, please keep reading. <laughs> oh, but it's the song. Yeah, just, just please just keep. I, mean, I had this ring in my pocket that I could barely get out. And she read to the end and she was like, you kidding me? And I pulled out the ring and said, no, I'm, I'm afraid not. So, um, you know, <laughs> she, not. yes, she, you know, so she accepted romantic. that. 
yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> but again, you know, she'd, uh, her and her husband had, had separated by then. And obviously I'd, I'd been separated from Mike's wife, but we weren't divorced. It wasn't as if we could just yeah. uh, jump straight into something. And again, being in two different countries, it's not as if that can, that can happen anyway, because there's procedures. Um, you know, and she also had to consider the impact and effect on on her daughter. And again, as I, we discussed earlier on, she was 15 at the time um, and she was uh, in a place she was an only child and, uh, and in a place where she was suffering from the separation of her parents because that was her life as she knew it over. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to just introduce me straight away would be, uh, you know, would it would have been too much. I got introduced actually on my first visit um and to be fair to her she was very she was very nice to me and she was always very pleasant in my company but she had a lot going on inside that she only discussed with her mom and you know there was a few fallings out and the, it boiled down to the fact that she thought that her um her parents had separated because of me Aww. she didn't realize that her parents had separated because it was time to separate um and the other thing that she was scared of being an only child and and having it was as she was growing up her father was away a lot he was a musician so he wasn't always there he was touring with his band in Europe and, and places like that so she, she would see him in staggered amounts of time um so it was just her and her mum mother mom and I came along and all of a sudden it's like the the fear of her having to compete for the her mother's love uh, crept in and she just thought that I was going to take her away or I was going to take advantage of her somehow um, why why am I here otherwise and that was her private battle um, and that resolved itself in the end and I'll talk about that uh, shortly um, but the relationship as it developed uh, we spent as I said earlier on we spent between eight and twelve weeks apart at a time uh, she came out to the UK a few times but um, most of the time it would be me going to uh, the states to Florida um, after having discussed what potentially would happen when we got married, uh, it was decided that because her daughter Maggie uh, was coming towards the end of high school, it would be um, incredibly unfair for her mum and her to move to the UK to rip her from everything that she knew to start again in an education system that she didn't know in a country that she'd never been to. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, how, how, how else more perfect would it be to stab her in the back with that? So. I said, well, look, you know, um, not it wasn't an easy decision, but it was an easy decision. I will, when it's time, I will move over um, to live with you. Now, bearing in mind, that's giving up time with my daughter. That's giving up my place of birth, and that's also giving up my career. And I'd wanted to be a police officer since I was 14. So that was a big thing. Um, but it was an easy thing because it was living with the love of my life. So, you know, whatever... However, it transpired in, in whatever nature, it was worth it. Um, but during that time, um, we started to sense that there was something else about our relationship that was very, very special. We already knew by that point that we'd had um, past lives together and we'd had some experiences where um, she would, she'd, have a, she'd had, had visions of a past life and I'd had visions of the same past life. Um, but through a series of uh, deep meditations, I was actually drawn back into my own experience and I had the, um, the, the more full uh, part of, uh, of what had gone on. Um, and during one of the meditations, I was brought back into the cloud space. I was brought back to being with the carpenter 
Um, and at, at that point then, rather than just that being it, I was then given another part of the, um, the experience. And I was actually, um, in my mind's eye, given a, a ball of energy, almost like bowling ball size. And I was allowed to hold this. And this was everything that I'd ever been. All of the decisions that I'd made, all the decisions that I hadn't made. So all of the left turns, the right turns, my omnipresence, everything. It was all in this ball of energy and to hold the ball of energy gave me the insight into um, perhaps what I would have to do, what I'd have to experience if I had chosen to go back. So I held this ball of energy and I then at that point could see my omnipresence. So all of the other me's that had come to that point and they'd all decided to stay because they didn't want to go back, didn't have the burden of, of um, experiencing those things and having people experience things because of me. And I didn't either. I was more than happy as that 13-year-old child to give that ball back and say, that, no, that's me done. But I was given the time to consider my options. So I was brought to a, a space where it was like I was sat on a rock near a lake and the lake water was washing on the shore. And I immediately realised that the water was like love and how love works is it draws onto the shore and it covers you in the love, but then it draws back and it takes something away. And you can't be afraid of that because it's all it's doing is it's uncovering a part of yourself that needs to be uncovered, that wants to be healed. And then you get covered in love again and it draws it away. And very gently it erodes all of the issues that you've had, all of the fears. Um, and, you know, you realize that love isn't going to go anywhere. It's not going to just draw out and never come back. It's always there for you. Um, and at that point, I thought I'd made the decision and I was brought back and the, uh, the carpenter, stepped away and there was a female energy that stepped in and she said hello my love you don't know me yet but if but if you decide to come back I want you to do me a favor I want you to come find me and I came out and I immediately knew the energy was Krista so somehow in that experience she was there to help me make the decision to come back and that's where we were um and it's like the the realization of just how important we've been to each other time after time after time and how important we are and it's 12 22 as we're saying this and i'm talking about 22 before mm -hmm. how important we are to each other and that important that she's even part of that very special experience so the decision was made to, to come back and not remember any of that because you can imagine as a 13 year old child coming back with the, the responsibility of all of that knowing that the person that I'm meant to be with is 20 odd years away, 22 yeah. years away in fact, it was 22 years between the, the accident and the realisation of, of that, that uh, it was that lifespan. 22, um, that's interesting. 22. Yeah, and actually we counted the amount of times that we visited, uh, visited each other before I was given permission to remain in the States with my green card. And that was 20, that was my 22nd trip. So, you know, uh, that's uh, one amazing example of the, um, the power of the love that we shared. Um, another very amazing example um, is back in 2018. So, we got married in February 2018 and we uh, followed the um, intuition to get married on the beach. Uh, we, tried, we tried to see if we could uh, have Krista come over to the UK 
to get married there and it was almost impossible. The loopholes that we'd have to have jumped through was just, it was, it was farcical really. Um, so it was like, well, let's see if we can do it in Florida. It was easy. We do, all we had to do was turn up at the local court, yeah. um, show out the divorce certificate, sign a bit of paper, hold the hand up and say, we swear it's all true. Yes, you can get married in three days. So we got married on uh, one of the local beaches at sunset. Very small, um, beautiful. Uh, and that was the time where uh, Maggie realised just how much we meant to each other. And, um, you know, she'd had the uh, she'd had the moment with her mum where uh, her mum had said, listen, there's different types of love. The love I have for you, you are my child. That's never going to change. And, and no one can ever replace that. And certainly Ainsley can't replace that because I have a different love for him. I have a love as a, a wife to husband. So that's a different love than yours, and then it will never, uh, never intermix, never, never mingle, never. There will never be a time where the love that she has for her daughter diminishes. Um, and then she saw the power of the love that uh, we shared, and um, Maggie and I then had a uh, our own sort of separate experience. She came over; no one else was looking. They were all watching the rest of the sunset and she came over and she burst into tears and she said I love you and I'm so glad that you're with my mum we just had this very beautiful <laughs> brief experience and it's like <laughs> everything that she'd ever been afraid of just disappeared at that time um and from that point on we've had a great great relationship um so you know together beautiful. and she's and funnily enough now we're talking she's 22 um get out of here 22 again yeah <laughs> So we had uh, we had that, and then uh, 2018. Um, after that, the the next stage for for me being in the states because um, we decided to get married first was to, for Krista to apply for uh, me to go over, um, and that was a a long process. It would take at least a year from the point we applied to the point where they would do anything else. Um, and within that time, I discovered that I had testicular cancer. So it's like all of the hopes and the dreams that had come to that point we've been married she'd applied for for me to come and, and live there and all of a sudden I have this and it's like you know is this the thing first of all is this the thing that's going to ruin my chances of living with the woman that I love um because well may, maybe medically they won't let me in um because of the um potential issues and I you know I had no idea what was going to go on so there was that um went to basically I'd found a lump uh, I've been to the doctor and the doctor said he was almost 100% sure it was an epididymal cyst. It was in the left testicle and it's always the, mainly it's always the left testicle that's affected by anything because of the way it sits. It sits and the epididymis and the tube that comes away sits a lot more shallow on the left side than it does on the right side and it's also closer to the body and heat affects the uh, health of the testicle. So I had this cyst supposedly um, and being a band, it was like, okay, well, the doctors told me that, so that must be what it is. Um, but there was this nagging sense that I needed to go back and then I tried to ignore it and Krista didn't. And she said, have you been for that scan that you were promised um, uh, to, to check and to make sure? Uh, no, I haven't. The doctor didn't. Um, doctor hasn't seemed to have organized it. So, you know, and she's like, you're going for the scan. Please go for the scan. So I phoned up the doctor's office and said, you know, uh, the doctor is supposed to have organised this uh, this scan and it didn't happen and all oh, the stupid deal left it and they were like, you all, you know, we'll, we'll sort it out for you now, but you really should have gone before. So it's like, well, you know, okay, fair enough. Don't don't give me a hard time. So I go for the for the scan and um, it's ultrasound 
and you almost you almost know when something's not quite right because the doctor that was doing the scan had to go out and speak to a colleague and then come back in and they're rumming and ahhing and they wouldn't really tell me anything and then just sent me away and then uh, a couple of days later I had a number of phone calls whilst I was at work that I couldn't answer and it was like quite urgent can you um, can you get back to us please and I went in to see the consultant and then the consultant said you've got testicular cancer we're pretty sure um it's if you're going to get it as a man it's the best type to get because it's the most treatable so there was all of those reassurances but at the same time is there's still this like you know great the timing of it couldn't be more perfect yeah so anyway i um phoned work because i was doing work that afternoon um and they were were great they just don't come in don't don't bother coming in just take the time you've just had this bad news so uh we'll we'll cover cover you um I got shouted at by my mum because I'd gone to the appointment on my own. And, you know, after I said earlier on, her father had died from cancer and, um, you know, she didn't want the same thing for me. So she said, you are not going to any more appointments on your own. You shouldn't have gone on this one. So I had a earache from my mum. I'm, you know, I'm 38 years old at the time and I'm yeah. getting my mum shouting at me. Um, sorry, mum, Mal, you know, I promise. Um, but I, I, I then told Krista, um her being a physician's assistant she had a better understanding of yeah. things than I did which was good um, but she said as soon as you get the date for your uh, appointment please tell me because I want to be there now I didn't know at the time but she'd had some time um that she'd taken off to go and see a friend of hers that she'd not seen since PA school so this was like 18 years early she'd not seen this friend and she had been due to go out in the June that year <laughs> And I said, well, I've got, got the appointment and the appointment's going to be June, the, uh, I think it was June the 6th or something like that. And she said, oh, that's funny because I've got time off, so I'll be there. She cancelled a trip with a friend and, you know, the, she spent the week with me. So we had a week before my operation and she was there for a couple of days afterwards and we went to Stonehenge and you know, had, a, had a great time and it was almost like a celebration of everything that I'd been. And I realised then that the um, testicular cancer was almost like the physical manifestation of everything I had felt about myself, the shame of being male. And it was like, well, here you go. Uh, this is the, this is the um, thing about energy and, and the uh, constant perception of something, it's going to manifest somehow. Whether it's in bad debt, whether it's in bad relationships or whether it's something, phys physical health, it's going to manifest somewhere. Yeah. So it manifested in that. So I had the operation that went well, took the testicle away with the tumour, the right is still there. And then I'm given time to convalesce whilst they uh, investigate the tumour to see what type of cancer it was. Um, because there's there's two main types of testicular cancer. There's a, a seminoma and a non-seminoma. Seminoma is a mild form, so it's a single cancer. Non-seminoma is a mix of cancers. So they have to have slightly different treatments for it. So you know, I, I've been given two or three weeks to start getting over the fact that I've been uh, cut open and uh, go and see the consultant. I have an appointment and it's a different consultant. Um, and it was a female consultant and she also had uh, a nurse practitioner in the room with her. And neither of them could look at me. No eye contact. They couldn't look at me. I'm with my mum and, they're, um, you know, sat down and I'm expecting for them to say, right, well, the next course of action would be for me to have chemo at some point. And uh, it was already July at this point. And Maggie was turning 18 and I had a special present that I wanted to give her. And I wanted to be out there to convalesce for some point um, during that, that period. So I wanted to spend three or four weeks of my time off with Krista and with Maggie and 
And I was told, uh, no, you can't, because um, we've had a look at uh, the cancer and we think what you've actually gotten, we're pretty sure, and we're very rarely wrong that you've got lymphoma. Now, they wouldn't give me any details. It's not our department. We're urology. You need to go and speak to hematology because it's to do with the blood. Um, so don't ask us any questions. We've got no answers. Um, the only thing that the nurse practitioner could do was give me some information about her counterpart in the hematology department. So I left a message with her and, um, you know, just to sort of see whether anything could be set up in the meantime. But I was told strictly I couldn't go anywhere because if it's aggressive, then they need to start treatment straight away. Even if it's not aggressive, then they need to uh, sort out treatment as soon as possible. So left unfounded and, and my mum's heartbroken because lymphoma is what my, uh, what her dad died from. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't just the, uh, the message, it was the, the delivery of it as well. It was, it was almost like the heartless, um, you know, way that it was, it was given by another female mm. who had no mother instincts whatsoever, I don't think. So we came away and I did the silly thing. I went on to Mr. Google and asked Mr. Google, uh, because I wanted to know um, what I might be looking at with lymphoma, uh, with a primary presentation in the testicle. And for the only uh, the only thing that came back was that for someone in their 60s, as a primary presentation, it wasn't so bad. If it's a primary presentation uh, in your 30s uh, and, and early 40s, it was completely different. I would uh, most likely have had an end-stage autoimmune disease, which manifested in the tu uh, tumour first and or HIV. So they're the only studies that came back. So you're getting, you're getting told this and, you know, it's like, uh, I'm not just looking at not being able to go to the States now, I'm looking at maybe not being here. Yeah. So I um, texted Krista, she was at work. So um, she was working in the ER at the time. Um, and, you know, I, I would send a text and sometimes I wouldn't get an answer from her until she finished. But within about 40 minutes, she was on the phone to me and said, listen, I, unbeknownst to me, she'd done the same research, which said, listen, uh, doesn't matter. I don't care what it is. I don't care whether we bring you to the States. I don't care whether I have to quit my job here and I come live with you in the UK. Whatever happens, I'm with you. And it's like, suddenly going from being in fear it's like I had a choice. I can stay in fear and have this manifest how it's going to manifest or I can choose love. So I was given a very direct choice to make and I chose love at that point because I wasn't going to be alone. Regardless of what would happen, I wasn't going to be alone. So that was the Thursday or the Friday of that week. And um, I'd already spoken to the nurse practitioner uh, about what was going on and I, I told her um, my situation and she said well look you know I'm I'm going to be at the meeting on Monday where they're going to discuss your case um, I can act for you if you will allow me and I can you know tell the doctors your situation and, and maybe we can sort something out and if you want I can give you some limited information on Monday I can't tell you everything because you know it's not my place to but I can you know perhaps uh, tell you a few things and I you know was very grateful I said thank you very much um, and on that Monday mid-morning I was out with my mum uh, we'd gone to a local town uh, there was a health food store that uh, did some different herbs and, and different things that may well help 
me convalesce should I have to go through this very aggressive chemotherapy. So we were in there and the phone goes and I've missed the first call because we were driving there and it's like, oh, I knew, you know, I knew who that was. And then the phone went again and I answered and it was the nurse practitioner and she sounded quite happy. And I'm like, okay, so we are oh, Mr. Threadgold yet. Yeah, so so-and-so nurse practitioner, we spoke last week. Um, I've got some good news. I know that we told you that you had lymphoma and I know that we said that we're very rarely wrong, but on this occasion we were. You actually have got still it's testicular cancer, but you've got the most mild form, which is a, a seminoma. So it went from me looking at maybe only having six months to me having the rest of my life. So yes, it could have just been a genuine mistake and whatever or mm -hmm. it could be that love changed everything yeah it doesn't matter it really doesn't matter the thing that matters is that that as well as all of the other experiences that Krista and I've had and every time we've talked and every time we've been to an, uh, uh, like a near-death conference or anything like that our relationship everything that we are together how we are together inspires people yeah and that's just one of one of inspiring many inspiring me yeah, one of many little things that just help people to to look at their own lives and say, okay, so you know, and it's not a case of well, I, I've had I've had worse things than you have, so you know, whatever. It's a case of just by looking at things in a slightly different way, in a different perspective, it can make all the difference. And it doesn't really matter how long you've got here; it's how you how you treat yourself and how how then that manifests in how you treat other people. Um, and you know, miracles do happen, you know, regardless of how we feel. Um, you know, we we then start to see life as miraculous, and you know, I, I that was another just a, another one in a long line of little miracles that we we had. And um, the interesting thing was that uh, in two thousand and nineteen, um, so after the year period where we had to wait for the paperwork to go through, everything after that point happened very quickly. Now, come uh, June. On the same day, a year later, I was on my way to a post, uh, a, quite a special post office in Manchester to pick up my uh, passport that had my visa in to allow me to go to the States. On the same day, on the same, it was about the same time I was been, I was hobbling out a year before out of, after having my operation. Exactly a year later, I was walking in to pick up my passport with my visa in to you know, then go and fly and, and start a new life in, in Florida. And I sat there and I realised, brought the package and sat in the car and I put the radio on. And there was a, a band, funnily enough, called The Darkness in the, in the UK. And one of their very fa uh, famous songs is I Believe in a Thing Called Love. And that was playing on the radio. <laughs> As I'm opening up the, the passport with, and it's like, it's exactly a year later. And this is on the radio and it's just like, of course, it, of course it's on the radio. Of course radio. it is. Of course it is. I have chills and I'm, I, I, uh, I, <laughs> I'm so moved by your story. And I had thought that, you know, in a lot of these interviews, I have a lot of questions, but I feel that you answered all of them just by the way that you so eloquently and emotionally told your story. And I thank you for sharing your story. Um, and I have stuff I want to say to you off, off camera too about the ways that it really touched me. But 
I also just wanted to say when you when you mentioned your diagnosis, I thought typical earth school stuff, right? You meet the love of your life. It's never going to be just this smooth ride all the way through or else why are we here? But it all seems so, um, so like there's so much synchronicity in your story. You find the love of your life. It's all coming together and then bam, diagnosis. And yeah. it definitely feels when I hear it, when I when I feel into it, it definitely feels like that was part of it. That was yeah, part absolutely. of part of the Why story. Yeah. And and you had said two things. Maybe love changed it, which I agree with. And also it was meant to happen. You already had this deep love, but it was also mm. meant to really show you. I mean, I guess show you really to, to have you face to face with this is everything that matters, even though you already knew it. Maybe you just needed a little bit extra to show that this is, don't ever take this for granted. Even when you get together and you've been together for years, you know, you've been together a long time. Sometimes we lose the magic because we're just day-to-day -day living together. But it sounds like you've really been able to retain that understanding of why you're together. Um, we're humans. Obviously, marriage is never super smooth, but with for anybody... Uh, it may be for you. I don't know, but I've just heard that a, a lot. And it, but it does seem like this was also preordained, just the way that your whole life fell together in this way. Do you agree with that in the sense that your Absolutely. soul definitely chose all of this? Yeah. And we're still choosing and we're still experiencing. And the, you know, the pathway to us both being on Maui was the, was the same thing. Um, I moved over, uh, so it was July by the time I moved over to Florida. Yeah. Um, and the original plan was for, for me to be there and for me to, you know, get work and, and start um, living there, but also to have as much opportunity to come back to the UK to see my daughter. Yeah. So I was able to go back twice during the latter part of uh, 2019 and then 2020 comes and, oh, pandemic. So that throws everything into yeah. disarray. And just before it really hit in the States and before everything closed down, um, Krista had uh, changed the job from the ER to working, uh, so it's this in Venice, Florida, working across the road in a pain management center. Um, and the doctor that wanted to, uh, that had set the uh, pain management center up, wanted to expand. And to do that, she needed money and she got an accountant in and the accountant said, well, you haven't got the money with the staff that you've got. So last in first out type thing so Krista was let go um she was given three three months so she'd have to give 90 days uh, notice if she was to leave and they gave her 90 days notice with pay mm -hmm. so she wasn't uh, left bereft but at the same time the you know it's, it's almost similar to the diagnosis just where you think that things are going a certain way they then don't so uh, I remember coming home from the job that I had at the time and, you know, she's sat there dumbfounded, I've, I've lost my job. Um, and it was a discussion of, well, look, you know, you can either get another job straight away in Venice or Sarasota because of the experience that she, you know, accumulated by then, or we can see whether your work uh, could be elsewhere. So we looked at different options. We looked at Alaska, we looked at um, uh, Midwest, um, and we also looked at Hawaii, um, that being a very special place to her. She'd been out to Kauai um, twice or three times, uh, 10 years previously. She had a friend who was living out there 
and you know she visited two or three times and actually really wanted to um, move her life to there at that time but again Maggie at the time I think she was 11 um, 11 12 and it would it would just wasn't the right time uh, to to shift and move that life so um, the idea got squashed but it was still there in the background somewhere so she applied for a job on Oahu um, so it's the island with Honolulu on and you know you know you've been to Maui um, she got a job um, with orthopedics that she, she was offered but at the same time uh, on Maui with Kaiser Permanente um, medical provider here uh, one of the people that she trained with as a physician assistant um, was already working for Kaiser and said we've got a position here if you want it why don't you apply so she applied for that job and cancelled this other job on Oahu um, and then uh, she just started the process and the pandemic shut it down so the, she then went to do uh, field hospital work in New York um, and then uh, for a year and a half was doing different uh, pandemic work so she'd be home for a bit and away for a bit and it was like we've just come from a relationship where I, uh, we wouldn't see each other for weeks or months on end and we've gone back into a relationship where we're still not seeing each other for weeks or months and still doing video chats except I'm now in Florida and she's in a different part of the States so at least we were in the same country yeah um, and then it came to um, summer last year and things had started to ease off and um, Kaiser recontacted and said are you still interested because we're just about to start to open the process up again and um, of course you know we, we still were albeit that we'd um you know we'd, we'd sort of grown by that point and we were like well, okay we'll, we'll we'll go with this process and i then started to look into the option of law enforcement and going back in um and i knew that by that point i knew that i could apply on my green card because hawaii is one of the states where you can do that um so that was a possibility for me uh, we went we came across in october um so she could have some in-person interviews and i could also see um the island and whether it would suit me um, and albeit that we um, had a few loopholes to, to jump through, it was like, well, okay, well, let's, let's make a go of it. And we came across in February and I applied for the police department and I was, you know, got in in October. But even that hasn't been that easy. Having done it for, you know, so long in the UK, I'm, I'm having to adapt to, like we discussed before the, um, before the show, having to adapt to all of the different ways the law is written and having to carry different equipment, having to carry myself in a different way, the physical uh, attributes to the, the training has been a, a lot harder. And maybe it's because I'm older. Um, you know, I was in my early 30s when I joined British Transport Police. I'm in my early 40s now, so you, your body isn't the same. But, we, you know, for four weeks, we were doing two hours of PT every day and a lot of that was running and that was wearing my body out. And then we move on to doing uh, driver training. A lot of that was very physical because you'd have the, um, it's not it's not called physical discipline. It's it's like a physical redirection. If you're getting things wrong, then you're down in what we call front leaning rest and you're doing push-ups and you're doing runs. And, you know, it's all different ways of just trying to push you to the edge um, to see how far you will dig. And that was the same with firearms training, the same thing. You know, if you did some, you know they, they would they would push you to see how far you dig and it's it's out in the weather it's out in the sun in the wind in the you know and you're getting dusty and you're getting muddy and, and all sorts and we're doing advanced defense tactics for the next three weeks so that again is another physically pushing to the limit so it's not an easy transition but we both know uh, that it's for a reason uh, it doesn't mean to say that it's a reason why we're going we're, we're definitely here forever because we're not 
and we know that the island knows that we're here for a particular amount of time and then it's time to go back and one of the big things that we've realized uh, now is that family is very important and you know Krista is actually um, at the moment she's in upstate New York seeing her family that's where she grew up or one of the places that she grew up and then she'll be going to Florida as well to visit uh, Maggie um, and it's really hit home for her that uh, family is the most important thing. So while she's got a, con a contractual obligation here, we'll be here until that's finished. And then at some point after that, it's it, it's going to be going somewhere else. So we haven't settled and life life isn't life isn't at the moment allowing us to do that. But at the same time, you know, what adventure film have you ever seen where halfway through the film, everything just resolves? It doesn't. You have yeah. the equilibrium at the beginning of the film. You have the most of the film where things develop and things change, and you get the you know the hero's journey. Uh, Joseph yeah. Campbell. Um, yeah, my my wife loves Joseph Campbell, and and you know he's been an influence on on films for decades, Star Wars and and things like that. But you have that hero's journey in the movie, and then at the end you have the the reward of the new equilibrium. Well, that's life, isn't it? You know we don't have the you know we have some settle points and then we have some points of upheaval and and then we have another settle point but we're, we're different and hopefully our vibrations are higher um right. you know and we grow from it or you can reel from it and then up having to do the same thing again and again and again until you get the message you know you can hit your head on on a brick wall once or twice but then it starts to get a bit sore and it's like i don't have to hit my head on the brick wall anymore i can just realize that the you know, the brick wall is a message and oh, oh look there is a message there and you can stand back from it and you know be inspired by it rather than trying to just hit your head against it exactly and that's why we're here and i know that uh we were hoping to have krista on if she was available but she's traveling i would still love to have her on i'm sure my audience would love to hear from her if she would like to speak so we will talk to her about that as well um if she'd like to join me separately i'd love that too um yeah but uh I just want to thank you so much for being here and for sharing such a beautiful story. I think that uh, there are so many, there's so many stories within the story and so many insights mm. within the story that I don't even need you to clarify them because your, your story is so powerful. And thank you, Ainsley, for this. This is just, I'm captivated by your story and by you. And, and thank you. That's all I got to say really is I'm just so grateful. My pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure too.